This is Trading for Keeps. I'm Brian. And this is Michael. Today, we have a special guest, a certified financial planner, uh, local to me and Brian here in Raleigh, North Carolina, Merce. Welcome to the show, Merce. Hey, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. So, Merce, we always like to get a, a little bit of a background of what brought you to the uh, to the markets. Did you always want to be a financial planner? You know, it's funny. I think everyone has their um, their kind of their development story as to how they get to where they are in life. And um, I, I I grew up in a construction environment, so my dad owned his own construction company, still does. Um, but then I went off to college right right over here at NC State. Uh, with an idea that I wanted to get into business. I didn't want to stay in the construction world, even though NC State is great for that if I had decided to go down that route. Um, so I said business, and then I'll figure it out. And then, you know, you get down the line in your in your undergraduate degree, and you eventually got to declare what your concentration is. And so for me, um, I declared finance. And well, within that, you know, finance is such a broad category. Am I going into accounting and am I going into investments? Am I going into, you know, just working for any type of company in their finance department, HR, anything could come up, right? So I, I distinctly remember my senior year. And at that time, I was fortunate enough to really only be taking a couple classes. I was pretty much done, but I had a few things left to take. And one of them was a personal finance class. And so we're talking all things about, you know, budgeting, saving for retirement, wealth building, everything like that, all the different types of accounts out there and everything. And that's where I first heard the term certified financial planner. Um, so that's really, uh, you know, I kind of, I liked it. It gelled really well with me, everything that we were talking about. Uh, that kind of led me into my banking career. And I always, from there, from that one class, I always had the aspiration to get my CFP. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, there's quite a bit that goes into it. You can't just show up and take the test. So you got to do some extra education, just like you would for a CPA or a CFA, some extra education, pass a pretty rigorous test. And then you have to have the work experience behind it that uh, takes a couple of years as well before you can actually start using those CFP marks. So um, that's kind of how I really created my little pathway into becoming a certified financial planner. But from the markets, um, you know, the markets I've always been in, interested in. Uh, my, my, my mom was involved in the, in the construction business as well, but she just really loved, you know, waking up in the morning and turning on CNBC or whatever. And back then it was pretty much, you just watch the ticker tape go across the screen for hours and hours and you see your, your stock and you see it come by once or twice and you see it moving a little bit. So, you know, and she was just doing it for fun. I mean, they would pick a few stocks that they had some type of know-how about and they would, they would just watch them go up and down, up and down, lose a lot of money here, make a lot of money here. That's kind of the, the world and how it works. So that's where I got my first um, uh, taste of it. And then it's just kind of snowballed from there. I wanted to hit on a couple of things. You mentioned the family had a construction business. What I, I have a construction background. I did it for a few years. What type of construction were you guys doing? Yeah, so my dad, my dad's just a residential contractor. So he'll build spec homes. Uh, they live in uh, Clemens, North Carolina, right outside of Winston-Salem. So he's got a company there that he, he will um, manage all that as far as building residential homes. Um, so, you know, back in, back when it was really, booming in the early 2000s he was doing anywhere from 15 to 20 spec homes a, a year maybe a couple of customs custom homes as well 
Uh, and then 2008 happened and that was a little bit of a struggle, but you know, he's still doing it a little bit now and he's in his late sixties, uh, really just to keep him sharp. Um, but you know, I, I, my brother and I, we both grew up in that and kind of learned every little piece it takes to build a house. And I think by growing up in that, I knew very quickly that that's not what I wanted to do, even <laughs> though we got really good at it. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think, I think when you, when you spend the time in, in an industry that was even, I was in uh, some industrial construction, crane and rigging work uh, prior to that, some metal fabrication. Um, you know, one of the things about some of the people I dealt with was just, I, I saw them and like same thing, even I served in the Marines for a while. And I just, I saw the people that had been there forever. And I was like, that, I don't want that to be me in 20 years. So right. that's when I started trying yeah, to carve my own path too. Um, all right. And also young. So you'd watch your mom uh, play with stocks a little bit. Did you ever, did they ever say, Hey, did you pick the next stock or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. So my dad, um, when we were at a young age, uh, set us up with our first IRAs uh, way back when, and eventually they became Roth IRAs. Um, and so he gave us, you know, he would say, you know, pick a stock and just buy some of it. And, uh, one of mine, uh, was it was before, well, what I ended up buying a long time ago was Wachovia stock, uh, which eventually became Wells Fargo. And funny enough, I mean, that's one of the first stocks that I ever bought. Funny enough, it's also really the first company that I ever worked for was I worked for Wachovia, as it was transitioning into Wells Fargo uh, on the retail banking side. So I was still at that time trying to figure out how to get my CFP and how to get into the wealth management side of finance. But uh, just a little, you know, funny thing there that I bought this stock when I was 14, 15 years old and end up working for him down the road. I think it's kind of cool. Uh, Microsoft was another big one, mainly because at, at that time, really the only reasoning I gave it was, uh, Hey, Xbox, right? Yeah. But go buy Microsoft, and and so then that that's that works okay sometimes. So, but well, that, that's, I can't that's really better think... due diligence than half the uh, half the people out there. You know, <laughs> I just say I like the stock. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, so, Mers, I you know I was maybe switching gears, but I was perusing your website, and uh, you know, you, it looks like you've done some really interesting stuff, and you have kind of your own podcast section there and you know that's that's really cool that you have that and maybe just one thing that i've been curious about because i was kind of perusing there you have a seven part series about annuities and i I think that's something that young people don't really know what that is and i hear that word annuity like i couldn't even you know what's the formal definition there and i'm sure we'd we'd all happy to link that but maybe if instead of watching a seven part series could you just kind of tell maybe our younger listeners what an annuity is and why would that matter to people and maybe i could talk to my parents about that you know that kind of product yeah, yeah, sure. And the reason is it's a seven part series is, um, you know, we like to keep we our podcast, which is called Secure Your Retirement. We started it last year and we kind of in the midst of not being able to see people face to face. We're all about educating in our company and putting good content out there. So we said, hey, let's start a podcast. It's been something that was been on our on the back burner for a while because you just get busy with business. But uh, COVID gave us the opportunity in the sense that we just weren't seeing as many clients as, as we normally would. Um, so uh, part of what we do in that podcast is we do our interviews with other experts. And then the other part is we do what we call retirement in action. And how do you apply certain things through retirement? And <clears throat> the annuity conversation just got so massive that we had to split it up into seven pieces. Because first of all, if you were to sit there and listen to us talk about annuities for 
what is what ended up being, you know, seven times about 20 minutes long, 140 minutes, your brain would just be completely melted because uh, they are they are great vehicles for retirement planning. Um, but they're they're a big beast that you really have to understand before you want to think about buying one. Um, but, you know, the high level about an annuity is it's an insurance product and it serves a purpose. So by no means are we annuity salespeople. That's actually, you know, of, 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 of the dollars that come in the door to us on from a from a new client perspective, maybe maybe 20 to 30 percent is going to go towards that. So we're mainly managing money in the stock market. But we do see a reason for it. And then we have clients that love the concept, love the idea of it, and they'll put way more that way. Um, Our job is to kind of say, well, here's some options as far as what you can do when it comes to earning some returns. And, you know, a lot of it ends up being based off of risk tolerance. So, but yeah, the annuity is really, it's an insurance product. And the old school thinking of it is uh, an annuity is designed to pay out an income stream. Um, and that's really just not the case anymore. They've, they've evolved that so much. So it used to be give the bank or I'm sorry, give the insurance company $100,000 and they're going to immediately turn around and give you lifetime income, whatever that number is. Maybe it's $500 a month for the rest of your life. If you die, that money is gone. Um, so, you know, that was the, the kind of the negative way of looking at it. It has since evolved so much. And that's why we put so much education out there around it, because now you can use it just primarily as a growth vehicle um, and, and kind of, you know, it can be linked to an index and you can get an index like return. So let's say the S&P makes 10%. Uh, if you're linked, you could probably make in that realm of anywhere from four to four to 6%, depending on the year, depending on where interest rates are. So we, we put it in the category of a bond alternative because there's a lot of safety that comes when you're invested in an insurance company. And then you can tack on lifetime income riders and all kinds of different things, but you know they've they've got their place. You just got to really understand them. Sure, well, that's yeah, that's a great high level uh, overview. I'm curious. You know, you say you, you talked about annuities as like a form of insurance. Are you also like selling insurance products too, like like life insurance or other things like that, or is that something that you you know refer them to somebody else? Yeah, so we're we we try to be as much of a one stop shop as we can. So wealth management is kind of all encompassing, right? So we're, we're building out the retirement income plans. We're taking their 401ks that they've invested in for years and years and years, and they hand it over to us. And then we're now actively managing, managing that in the stock market. If there is an insurance need like life insurance, uh, we have the ability to write that as well as sell an, annu- an annuity vehicle, um, which is an insurance product, but it's kind of separate than your, ID, your typical life insurance deal. Sure. That sounds great. All right. I want to back up a little bit on, in terms of uh, into your career. So you got a job at Wachovia. How did how did you end up at, at Wachovia there? Did you was it just filling out an application online or did you know somebody there? Um, that was I mean, that was pretty much straight job board. So right when I graduated from uh, college at NC State, it was I, I knew I wanted to go into finance, uh, something in the client facing type of world. And I just it was applying to different banks in the area and just happened to land on Wachovia. So it was really just, there wasn't any help that was given through my college or anything like that. It was just, you know, the luck of the draw when you put out applications, they're probably receiving, receiving thousands of them. And so I was a banker there. Uh, really, it was a short term there. It was, it was kind of actually the worst time to be there, which was when, well, not the worst, the worst is when all that stuff happened. Um, you know, all the fraud and all that. I actually left 
right before any of that stuff happened. But the second worst, I guess, would be during the transition of Wachovia to Wells Fargo. Um, and so just in the sense that it was, a, it was a lot of craziness that was going on, just like with any other merger that would happen. Um, so I was really only there for about a year and a half to two years before I landed uh, where I am right now. Okay. And then you, at that point, I guess you took the exam to become a certified financial planner. Can you give us a little bit of background? What does that take? I know this is a TM there. Is that like a private certification or is that government regulated? How does that work? Um, it is. It's just a private certification, just like a CPA, just like a CFA. So it's another type of certification that's out there. Um, and it is pretty regulated. Uh, so you have to get, you have to have uh, a bachelor's degree. Um, then you have to have the qualifying education for financial planning. So for me, while I was working at Wachovia, Wells Fargo, I was also taking night classes for two years um, to get all the education under my belt. So it's kind of like you want to look at it kind of like taking a master's program in a way. Uh, now there's plenty of master's programs and undergrad programs for financial planning. So you could come out of undergrad fully qualified to sit for the exam. Um, but yeah, so I was taking, I was taking night classes, then you pass. So you pass that course curriculum and then you're eligible to sit for the CFP exam. Um, back when I was taking it, it was a two day test. Uh, I, be, I believe about 11 hours split over two days is how long the test was. Now I'm pretty sure they, they brought it down to one day and it's all computerized now. Uh, when I did it, it was Scantron. Um, and so then I you know passed the test, but still not a CFP yet. Now you have to prove that you have the relevant financial experience. So banking did help some of that. And then working where I were uh, working here um, got me the rest of that experience. So I was able to put my CFP marks on me pretty quickly. So I just have two follow-up questions, but what, so with Wachovia and Wells Fargo, and I think we're kind of, you know, people might be aware of the, you know, what happened there with the, the, the uh, fraud there. Maybe you could describe that maybe just as a reminder, but did you, did you witness any of that firsthand or did you see any of that or is it, or secondhand or hear about that when it was going on? Yeah, not really. No, never witnessed any of it. I mean, when I was there and part of the reason why I left um, or, or started searching, it, it was just a very heavy, heavy sales environment. Uh, and, you know, you think about a bank and you're like, well, what, what are they really selling? Well, banks care about new accounts being opened. They care about money coming in the door. And the way to do that is through opening new accounts. And so bankers were uh, pretty much evaluated and bonused on their ability to sell these different products, well, whether it's opening in a, a bank account, a checking account, a savings account, a credit card, whatever it was. Um, that's kind of where your incentive plan is built out. And so, you know, it, it's very easy to see how that could happen. If, if you're incentivized to open these accounts, you're going to do it as best as you can. And also you've got a lot of top end pressure coming on you from your managers and their managers and their managers, which is kind of what the story was. So a lot of fraudulent account accounts got opened and people didn't know about them. Um, bankers got paid on them from what I could tell. But, you know, that wasn't that all kind of really came into fruition after I, I, I had left, which I was for, fortunate to not really be tied to all of that. Um, but, you know, now since then, I, I still know a bunch of people that work there and the the uh, mentality has changed quite a bit. So uh, people love working there again, like they did when it was Wachovia. And um, and I think they're doing as good of a job as they can to kind of rewrite who they are, what their name is and everything. But it's, it's a big corporate company. It's not really a bank. 
just like any of the other ones, Bank of America, big corporate companies. Sure. Well, that's that's really fascinating. Yeah, I can see the the pressure and yeah, why individuals might do that then. And maybe the question just about the taking the test that you know to to um, you know get certified. Um, you know, you said it was two days, like eleven hours. I'm just kind of curious. You know, like um, you know what like maybe the pass fail rate is, and you know, like kind of what was your studying? Did you have to like? I'm assuming you had to put tons of hours and tons of practice tests in there. And you know, I guess I don't know any words of advice to people who might be considering going down that path and taking that test. Um, it was it was a lot. It was a beast of a test, uh, and you know, part of the, part of the education of, or, or let me say it this way, I was never the best studious school kid in school. So I was pretty sharp in the sense that I could get through high school. I could get through college, uh, just kind of reviewing my notes right before a test. Uh, this was not the case with the CFP. This was, I had to relearn, retrain myself on proper studying techniques and everything like that. And uh, it ended up being that, and I was um, uh, engaged at the time. What was it, three, four? Well, we we were. I, I was living with my girlfriend at the time, and so basically, I would come home from work. We would have a quick bite to eat, and then for about two and a half to three months leading up to the exam, every single day, I would head to DHO Library, the library here at NC State, or um, the other one on Centennial Campus. I would just head straight there without even giving myself a chance to talk myself out of it. And I would be there from about seven, eight o'clock until they, until 10 or 11 o'clock. So about four to five hours of study every single day for two straight months. Uh, and, and that, that kind of got me there. Then I was able to also, I took a, a couple prep courses that really, once you've got all this knowledge, they really hone it in for you. Um, but yeah, it was, it was no joke. Um, and so my, advice if anyone is going down that route you know take it very seriously and uh, uh, what I learned is don't think that you are smarter than you are because there's a lot of knowledge that you got to cram in there so <laughs> well we appreciate that that's, that's great I didn't even realize how much effort it really did take to get there I knew it was kind of strenuous but you know that's good that you just you just did it before you could talk yourself out of it. When I was yeah. running uh, my thousand k last year, which was over the course of several months, I just had to do that. I woke up, I stumbled out of bed at four thirty in the morning, I went out and got five miles in. If I if I had waited till you know fifteen minutes, I would have talked myself out of it every day. But once you get that habit going, uh, that's that's great. That you can you can really accomplish a lot though. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. I'll say another thing I want to touch on before we get into some of your, I want to hear a little bit about how you actively manage these things, but you're also a first generation American, right? Where's yes, your, I am. Can you tell us where your family came from and what brought them to the uh, States? Yeah. Yeah. So my um, family is from Pakistan. So I was actually, um, I was born there, uh, but we came over when I was really only a couple months old. And what got us to the States is my dad, uh, my dad, um, got a scholarship to attend UNO, which is the University of New Orleans. Uh, and he was able at that time to bring the whole family over. So it was kind of like a, a master's program with a stipend that kind of covered some expenses for him that got us all over here, which was, that's the leap that you take, right? Once you're over here, especially back then, back in the early eighties, you can, you can find things that it, it is going to work out. Um, so he, he did all kinds of stuff. He was working, uh, I mean, he was working towards his master's. Uh, he's a chemist, but he was also, so he was working in a lab. 
as well as there's times where I remember he said that he worked at a gas station uh, as well. He would kind of flip cars in the sense that he would buy a beat up car, fix it up, sell it for a couple hundred bucks profit, you know, so just working all kinds of odd jobs because when you're on a student visa, there's only so much you can do uh, to make money. And so, so it was, it was something pretty incredible that he did. And, you know, you always hear about the living the American dream. And I mean, I think we, he made it possible for us to do that. So we, you know, finished up at, at UNO and then we kind of bounced around trying to find where we wanted to to settle the family, uh, did some retail stuff for a little bit. Then he got his construction license and, and everything kind of settled from there, uh, to where he was able to take care of the family pretty well. So it's quite the story. Um, and I don't, I don't do it justice when I tell it, but it's quite the story. <laughs> that's, that's an amazing story. I, I'm kind of curious, is, is there a, like a large Pakistani community in the triangle? Cause you know, I, Michael and um, I, myself, where we all live here. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, um, do you still have like, you know, ties to that community or heritage, you know, that now that you've, you're here? I mean, yeah, the, in, uh, in the, I would say the triad area, which is like the Winston-Salem high point, that type of area, Charlotte, where my, where my parents live, where I grew up, uh, there's a pretty large community. There's also a big community in the triangle here right now. Um, my parents are very, very intertwined and, um, uh, in that, in that community, me, not so much. Uh, I, I just kind of niche, niche myself into a different type of group. So I've got all kinds of friends really all over the place, but yeah, there's a large community here. I think it's North Carolina is really an easy place to decide to settle down into. So a lot of people, uh, want to come in and, you know, you can go off of the stereotype of, of, uh, foreigners and immigrants kind of being better at certain types of jobs. And, you know, we have a lot of that here. We have a lot of technology. We have a lot of pharmaceutical, a lot of doctors, really good healthcare. So I would say it's a big draw for a lot of that, that category, without trying to be stereotypical. It's just, that's what it is. I would say, it's funny, I just moved to a new community in Apex and I'd say all my neighbor, neighbors, they, they appear to be Indian people, you know, and, so, uh, and I'm half Chinese, so, you know, maybe live in some stereotypes there, but uh, so that's really interesting <laughs> that you mentioned that. Just, just out of curiosity, maybe I'll ask one of, the, one of those questions, maybe not too super appropriate, but uh, any great Pakistani restaurant recommendations you can make to me and Michael, just because I'm curious to try, you know? Yeah, I actually, so we rarely, rarely ever do eat out when it comes to Pakistani or Indian food. When I want it really bad, I go to my mom and she'll cook up something really good in Winston-Salem, Clemens area. But um, no, my, so my wife is actually white and, uh, you know, she she loves all of that food too, which is really nice, but I, it just doesn't taste like what I grew up eating sometimes. So, but there's some good ones in in like the the Chatham square area and everything, uh, in, in downtown Cary. I mean, I think that's as close to authentic as you're going to get, but no, I couldn't name one. That's one that's better than the other. I think they're all pretty good. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> well, that's interesting. You mentioned Chatham square too. Cause, uh, little Tokyo is there, which is the best, the best sushi I can find in the triangle. And it's just like, yeah, this little hole in the wall. Nobody knows about, but now, now everyone's going to know. Cause I just said it on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've driven by little Tokyo so many times. And I have heard good things. I just haven't tried it yet. But since you said that, we'll make, we'll make sure to give it a shot. Yep, definitely do. Um, all right. So back to, back to finance, you know, we, we hit tangents sometimes. Um, but so you, you, you started working at, um, at this firm, Peace of Mind Wealth Management. So what exactly is a wealth manager? What, what are you guys doing there? 
Yeah, I know you mentioned briefly some of the things in terms of active management, but a, a new customer, I'm showing up. I think you you focus more towards people gearing towards retirement, right? So I'm 55 years old. I've just got my 17 million dollars, and I want to retire. <laughs> and all I need is a, you know, what what do I what do I do? How does that work? Yeah, so we we do focus on the person that's close to or already in retirement. So we kind of define that as about 10 years out of retirement or already retired. Everything that we have built around us, all the all the uh, connections that we have, all the tools that we have is really geared towards that type of person. Um, and the way that we um, manage money is geared towards that that type of person that says, you know, I've 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 done the 401k asset allocation. I've done I've seen my money diminish in 2008. I saw it diminish in 2000, 2001, 2002. You know, I just don't want to live through that again. I've got, you know, 10 years of working left in me at the most, typically with our clientele, um, or I'm even closer. And the last thing I need, I don't need 20, 30, 40% returns on the upside. I need protection on the downside. And so we've geared our investment system around that as well. So really, there's four there's four core things that we do, which we would call essentially wealth management. There's a lot of little things under it, but number one is money management. You know, for someone to become a client of ours, they really have to agree with our philosophy because we only have one philosophy. We're not going to create something for someone else just because you know they like Tesla stock and they want to do stuff with that or Bitcoin. Um, you know, so uh, money management's number one. Number two is retirement income planning. So building out that retirement plan. Uh, that's a huge part of what we do, probably even bigger than the money management. Once you understand the money management, I mean, we take discretion on the accounts. We're going to handle that. Yeah, we'll talk about them in the reviews. Yeah, we'll give you updates. But it's kind of on, for the client perspective, it's kind of on autopilot. They've they've signed up for our program <clears throat> and they just roll with that. But the retirement income plan, well, that takes quite a bit of handholding. That takes quite a bit of maintenance and monitoring because we're typically updating that every single year. You know, have there been changes? What's going on now? Have you retired? What about, you know, when's, when's the best time to take social, social security? What about your pensions? Um, so a lot of different questions come up there. The third piece is uh, tax management. So we don't do our clients tax returns, but we do have a CPA on retainer that we utilize for tax strategy. So huge one that comes up all the time is Roth conversions. Um, you know, what, how, how much or should I be doing a Roth conversion? Well, we'll loop in our CPA uh, to help us run numbers because we're not CPAs by any means. Well, to run numbers on to, on to well, you know, you could, sir, you could probably do 20,000 this year without going into another tax bracket if you wanted to from a Roth conversion perspective. Um, and then the last piece is estate planning, which is huge. Um, we don't have an attorney here, but we have relationships with attorneys that are going to help our clients make sure they have all the documents in place, like your wills, your power of attorneys, trust if it's needed and stuff like that. So those four things really are massive. And then you've got little things under them, like long-term care planning, insurance planning, like we talked about, um, Medicare, Medicaid, all the all these kinds of different things. Over the years, we've just developed resources that we can pretty much do almost everything that you can think of when when someone works with us. And if we can't do it, we'll find someone that can help us do it. Okay, excellent. And then now you did talk about actively managing it. You know, when I think of active management, I'm thinking, uh, you know, hedge fund, mutual fund. Is that do you compare to that, or wh how, what's your take on that? I guess. How do you compare? 
<clears throat> yeah. So we, I mean, active management is, it's such a broad term. We're definitely not a hedge fund. Um, we're definitely not a mutual fund uh, that's doing a lot of stuff with inside the mutual fund. So we're actually a very transparent and we don't call ourselves a money manager either, really. Um, but we are uh, just a transparent uh, RIA that we are able to take discretion on people's accounts. So what happens when somebody becomes our client? Uh, first thing we do is we move their assets to Charles Schwab. So every RIA has to uh, custodian somewhere. Um, typically, 99% of advisors are going to custodian somewhere. Otherwise, you've got the ability, if you wanted to, like create something like Madoff Securities, where you're your own um, custodian. And then you have the ability to do a bunch of stuff in there like Madoff did way back when. Uh, so we stay away from that. 99% of advisors like us stay away from that. We want a third-party custodian that's going to generate statements for us, that's going to make sure that we're on the up and up. And so client becomes a client, moves their assets to Schwab, and now we become the trading advisor on their account. So it's still their account. It's not like we're pooling any money together or anything like that. Still their account, still their IRA, still their joint brokerage account, whatever it is. And so now we just have the ability to trade that and we do that via block trades. And, and what we are investing in is ETFs. There was a period of time where we would use mutual funds. We've never used stocks, individual stocks before. Um, so what we have found is most efficient for what we do. And from a, from a price perspective, and transparency perspective, we use ETFs 100% of the time now. What types of ETFs do you look at? Are you buying and selling relatively often? Is it just here and there? I mean, are, are you buying and holding for a long time or is it, you know, in and out in a couple of weeks, a couple of months? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, active, when you hear active management, sometimes you could go towards someone is day trading and then someone is doing, you know, a quarterly rebalance or an annual rebalance. That's, those are kind of passive uh, when you're talking about rebalances. Um, but, you know, we, we trade as needed. Um, by no means is it day trading. Uh, but there have been times that we've had to make a couple trades in a month. Um, and then there have been times where a, a, a position, an ETF position will last a year, a couple years, depending on what's working at the time in the market. So uh, what ETFs we're using, you know, we are not tied. We're completely independent. So we're not tied to like an iShares or, or any of those big names. It just turns out sometimes that those big names typically have the lower cost ETFs that we can get into. And volume is a huge deal. As I'm sure you know, we, we, we typically are going to lean towards an ETF that has better volume in case we do run into some volatility and we do need to liquidate. We want to make sure that it's easy to do so. So now we, we're not tied to any type of ETF company. And then within the world of ETFs, all we're doing is we're evaluating where is the best place to be in the market at the given time. And, you know, we could talk about last year, 2020, um, for 75% of the year, the place to be was large cap growth and it was technology. And it, you, you may just hear that and you're like, I don't really remember any of that. But if you think about what was working last year and we're not, we're not ever doing this, we're not ever guessing as to what's working, we're not ever strategizing or theorizing, we're purely working off the numbers. But the story 
ends up being that what types of companies were working last year? Well, it was your Zoom. It was your Amazons, the big, large companies that could survive what was going on last year and the technology companies that helped provide the ability to survive what was going on last year. And they really, really thrive. And so for a big period of time, we got back. So let's just paint the picture of what 2020 was last year. We had January, February, which was okay, above average start to the year. And then you really have middle of February, March, where it just plummets, right? Plummets down. The S&P fell by, uh, I believe it was around 34%. Yep. Um, and so what we did is we went to cash. Uh, we went to cash and then we got back into the market right around uh, end of April. And when we got back in, it was large cap and technology. And we had a leaning and overweighting over into those in all of our portfolios. And it, and it really, really worked out. It really paid off. Um, so, I mean, a, a quick analogy as to how we make these decisions is we're always looking at what's working in the market at all times. And so what I like to say is just paint yourself a picture of all of the places that you could potentially buy in the stock market and put them in a race together. So very high level, you've got equities, you've got bonds and fixed income, and then you've got cash. And yeah, within, within each of those three, you can drill down pretty deep into different sectors and subsectors and all kinds of different bonds and even all types of different cash positions. But really, it's those three, equities, fixed income, bonds, and cash. And so we put them in a race together and we want to see who's winning. Now, Nine times out of 10, equities are going to be winning that race. But you go to a 2001 type scenario, you go to a 2008 type scenario, equities are falling heavily. Bonds have actually creeped up. In 2000, they did creep up to where they were leading the race. Not so much in 2008. In 2008, you had equities falling back. You had bonds falling back. You had cash by default, not really moving, but it's leading the race. And so that's really a high level way as, as that we look at it. As to, well, there are times where you need to be in equities. There are times where bonds make sense as well. And there's also times where cash makes sense. And that's really where our preservation, our risk management comes into play. We're not afraid to go to cash. A lot of money managers are not allowed to go to cash. Mutual funds are not allowed to go to cash at times. Um, and they're held to certain, uh, certain allocations that they're supposed to hold. So it's just a little bit different. And that's why that's why that that closer to retirement person is attracted to us because they know at some point, you know, we're going to say we need to pump put put the brakes on this loss that's happening back in March of last year or any other turbulent years. Can I just ask a mechanics question? So, like, are people do they have to approve of your strategy? Or are you just going to do it? Like, so for instance, you went to cash, you know, out of out of the market, you rebalanced it. You know, do they say okay, that's fine, you know, Mers, go ahead and do that, or do you just do you, do you just do it automatically on their behalf. I'm just kind of curious how that yeah. happens. Yeah, it's a good question. So when anyone signs up with us, they give us full discretion on the account. Full discretion means we have the ability to trade the account as we see best fit. So when we decided it was time to move to cash, we didn't call up all of our clients. We went ahead and moved, made that move. If we had to call all of our clients up, well, that could have been another 10% fall off that we saw by the time we got through all of that. So our clients know that when they're entering into this agreement with us, they really have no more say left. Yes, there's certain things that they can do. They could come in with, you know, maybe they really like their Apple stock. And so we'll hold their Apple stock for them um, and we'll, we'll kind of carve that out. 
Um, but they can't really tell us what to buy or when to sell. And quite honestly, they don't want to do that. And that's the reason they're hiring us is because we do have a decent track record of making a decent rate of return on the upside, but really staying out of harm's way is what really attracts that person to us. Um, and so that's what we're here for. That's what they want to see. They want us to take action as soon as possible. Uh, and they don't want to be involved. We're not, we're not really attracting uh, the, the really techie, not day trader, but very involved market person. We have a few of those too, and they happen to agree with everything that we're doing, or they'll give us kudos here and there. Um, or they'll say, hey, you manage this money and I'll manage my money and we'll just kind of see how we do against each other. But yeah, we get full discretion and and really that's what we need to be able to do this is is have the ability to trade as soon as we need to. And maybe this is just a secondary point. You know, we've we've had some ETF people come and talk on our podcast and we've had some other, you know, folks talk about this issue. And so one, I guess, issue for younger investors, I don't know if it's so much for older investors, but there's this kind of environmental society, you know, looking for good like ESG is something that people care about, right? You know, for instance, I don't want to invest in you know, Altria, because I don't want to, you know, I don't believe in smoking, right? Or I, you know, I might not want to invest in gambling. I mean, is that something that you consider in your portfolio? Or is that something you see in your clients asking you about that? Or is that something that maybe just the younger generation cares about, you know, and, and maybe not so much people nearing retirement, they just care about their money. I'm, I'm kind of curious. Yeah, I, you know, we've had that conversation. ESG has been such a, it's so relatively new. And, uh, you know, when we go to conferences and everything, ESG has taken has really taken over um, in the sense that there are new offerings constantly coming out with all these different ETF companies there. And there is a reason to be responsible when you are, when you are doing your investments. But I would say that's mainly in our, in our type of um, uh, age group. Uh, you know, well, I mean, we're not, because we are catering to a big group of people, uh, we're not just going to go out and buy marijuana ETF, even though it's done really well over the past you know, few weeks, couple months, uh, it's done okay. Um, but we're, we're not going to go and buy that just because we can buy other things that are doing just as well um, to a degree. And uh, so we are not saying that we need to, we don't have a model that we can just buy ESG only. And actually we've tested that and they've gotten better and better over the years, but ESG, if that's all you want to do, you're going to under underperform a little bit if you're completely wide open to everything. But that's kind of the decision you make. You know, if you want to be socially responsible when it comes to investing, there's always going to be trade-offs no matter what, uh, was, ESG was, or not. That was the exact answer. We had uh, one of the guys that actually creates ETFs that we had on, uh, Wes Gray, and he, we asked specifically, go, well, if we had, a, if we had a, a good ETF and an evil ETF, and he goes, evil ETF, yeah, that's where the money's at. You're going to make money on the evil ETF. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just, that's just how it works. I mean, because think about what the ETF guy is doing to create that ESG. Well, they, they only have a certain subset of companies that they can put into this ETF and they may not be the strongest, but yeah, they're socially responsible, but they're, they're you know, they're not, they're not the moneymaker that, that Tesla is, or I don't know if where Tesla comes in, in that category, but they're not the moneymaker that some of these big corporate companies that are. And so that's why there is going to be some lag when you go into that world. But yeah, it's coming up. And I think, you know, people are just fine saying I'm investing that way and I'm okay if I don't make as much this year as I would have in another strategy. It just makes me feel good. And I think that's completely fine. Oh, that's great. I, so I'm kind of curious, you know, and maybe this is just for me, you know, um, so how do you reach these clients of yours, you know, that are kind of nearing retirement? This is kind of a specific range. Are, are they, are these people on social media, on Facebook? Are you talking to friends of friends? Are you, are they just driving by your office and they're like, oh, okay. You know, or I'm just kind of curious, you know, you know, you're, you, 
you see like a young guy, you maybe not, you know, hanging out with, you know, 50 year old, 60 year olds all the time, you know, hitting up the old people scene. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, how you meet these folks. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, when you're, when you're trying to grow a business, you want to have as many funnels that are working for you as possible. So we do quite a bit of marketing. So we're not like, uh, I'm sure you've probably seen Ken Fisher and all of his different ads when you go on Google. Um, uh, but so we're not spending the millions of dollars like he is, or like Morgan Stanley is, or all these other big wirehouses are to get you to go to their website. Um, but we do targeted marketing. So we are doing seminars at restaurants and teaching people about what we do. And if they decide they like it, then they'll come into the office and get to know us better. Um, we do, we do have a, we're starting to build our online presence. You know, the, our target client really isn't on social media, but they're on Facebook. They're not on Instagram they're not on TikTok and all the other things, but they're on Facebook because they want to keep up with their kids that are on Instagram and TikTok and all that stuff. And so we have started doing some marketing via Facebook and just your, your typical SEO search engine optimization through Google um, and different, different campaigns that way. But now we get a lot through just being able to meet people face-to-face through the seminars that we put on, educational workshops, um, we're not, we're definitely not the firm that says uh, we need to bring in a hundred clients a month or anything like that. We're happy. We're very happy if we bring in, you know, if we average maybe two new clients a month or 20 a year, uh, that's kind of, that's where we're, where our run rate is. That's what we like to see. And we, it's, we're, that's pretty attainable based off of the things that we put together. And maybe just one other question. You have a partner that you work with. I'm just curious, how did you, I guess, after your, you know, started your career, but how did you you know, get this business started and how did you, you know, meet your partner and, you know, you know, kind of form the, 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 the group here? Yeah. So he actually hired me. Uh, once again, I was at, I was at the bank. I was kind of unhappy with what I was doing. I knew that I didn't want to be in retail banking for the rest of my life. I wanted to transition into financial planning, the investment side of the world. So, I mean, the job board served me well and I found him, he found me. Um, and I, I worked, you know, I came in kind of as an entry-level advisor to him. And I've been with him for about 10 years now uh, and, and uh, became a partner last year. Um, so it was just kind of timing is uh, unfortunately everything when it comes to working, uh, you know, when it comes to finding the right job, uh, when it comes to the markets, even though we d- it's not the best to try to time in our opinion, um, but timing does work out in your favor or against you sometimes. So yeah, I just happened to find his, his, his job posting and we gelled really well together. Uh, he's about 10 years older than I am, 12 years older than I am. Um, and, you know, as the years gone by, uh, it just, it just made sense. So I came in really to learn the business and then I learned how to speak with clients and then I learned how to do the trading and then I learned how to build the financial plans. And so it just kind of stepped, stepped its way up into where, well, Hey, now I'm a partner. Um, so it was a pretty great experience so far. And, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate for that. I did want to ask a little bit about your actual trading. You mentioned that you sold basically at the beginning of the panic and then you managed to buy late April kind of after the panic was over there in 2020. What, what type of signals were you looking at that gave you those indications? Yeah. <clears throat> so we have, uh, we're, so we're a small shop. We we're four people. So me, um, my partner, then we've got a front office person who's not a financial person. Then we've got a marketing person or our, or our operations person. So really it's me and Raiden, my partner, his name is Raiden. And, uh, 
by no means are we sitting there and watching the screens every single day, every single hour the, mar- the market is open. It's just impossible to do that and take care of clients at the same time. So what we have to do is we have to outsource analysts. So we can either hire one really expensive analyst in-house, or we can go to companies that have analysts that will just drive, push you information. So we have three different analysts that we use, and they're all very similarly, similarly aligned as to what we're looking for. So we get three reports every single morning as to what's going on with the numbers. And the numbers are pretty much, it's uh, an evaluation of um, uh, relative strength. It's an evaluation of your, your different time segments as to how things are going. And, um, you know, we, we, we see, we can see how the major asset classes are moving. Uh, But ultimately what triggered us to go to cash is we have a one, one indicator that's a short-term combination, long-term indicator that enough things happen to where in a, in a, in a very simple way, we're looking at every single piece of the market in a very simple way. If cash moves up in just one position, then that is a very quick indicator that it's time for us to go to cash. A lot of other things happen to ha- have to happen for that to happen, but that's essentially what did happen is that that short-term, long-term combination indicator of ours, it flipped. And so we went to cash. And now we have to wait again for that to go positive. And there's a lot of things that have to have to happen for that to, to, to come into play as well. So it, it took us out of the market for about two months, you know, uh, and we missed out on some too. April 30th was not the right time to get back in, but everyone was so nervous. Uh, and you know, it just didn't seem right even at April 30th to get back in, but we did because that's what the numbers said and it worked out in our favor. I think the best time to get back in was, I think like the last day of March when it really bottomed out and started rocking and rolling back up. But that's where hindsight really comes into play. You're never going to catch the bottom and you're never going to pick the top, right? That's right. So, okay. Well, that's, that's great. Um, what, can you give us an example of some of the positions you have on right now? If you don't mind. I can, I can. Yeah. So, I mean, right now, what we're always doing is looking at the major asset classes. So what is working right now? Like my story last year of large cap and technology being the front runners. Um, that doesn't mean if they're, they're the front runners, that's all we're investing in. That would be a little bit too aggressive. So we want to see what's working and we kind of look at it and say, well, what's the average stock market type of position? What's going to give us the best look as to what the overall stock market's doing? And some people may say that's the S&P. We kind of look at the Russell 3000. It's got a bunch of stuff in it, kind of all showing how the entire world does. And so then we say, all right, well, what's performing better than the Russell 3000? And so really since about the end of November of last year, that we started to see that transition from large cap and technology out of those, starting to see a rotation into the small cap position, small cap value, small cap growth, blends, mid caps as well, and then some sectors. Um, so right now, uh, what we are in, we're in a couple different small cap positions. I can tell you the tickers right now because you know that could change tomorrow. Uh, very likely, it won't change tomorrow, but. The tickers that we're in right now for small cap are IJS, which is a small cap 600, IJJ, which is uh, that's actually a mid cap 400. And then we've got a couple first trust ETFs that are small cap oriented as well. Um, and then we've got a few sectors uh, that we so we like to have our core, what we would call our core positions that are typically going to be 
in the larger style style boxes. So your small caps, your large caps, your mid caps, finding an ETF within that arena. And then we will take on a small position in sector. So uh, right, right now we're consumer goods, we're a little bit of technology, and we are a little bit of industrial. Uh, we actually, our last trade was uh, March 1st. So we, we flipped out basic materials and we bought energy. And I was just looking at it real quickly. I mean, that's been a pretty decent move in the past just 10 days that we've had it so far. So um, yeah, yeah. Energy Ener- has been doing really well. So yeah. So, and you know, were we late to it? Maybe a little bit, but our numbers aren't really to tell us the beginning of a trend. Our numbers are really to say, hey, this trend has somewhat solidified. So it's worth, worth getting into it now. Um, so we're never trying to bottom feed and we're never trying to cut it right at the top because that's, that's pretty difficult to do. And there's risk to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I even, I actively day trade, you know, positions in and out 15, 15 minutes to an hour. And I know for a fact that I'm never going to pick the bottom or pick the top. I'm looking for certain trends within a certain hour or so. And yeah, just, I would say the, the meat of the move, if you can catch the meat of the move, you're, you're doing pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and that it, it, it's, it's amazing sometimes because our portfolio right now is not really moving with the market. So the Russell, the S and P, um, we're, we've had such a great year this year. And we also never tell clients to expect this to happen. So last year, last year, we avoided a 34% sell-off. We got back into the market and we actually came out ahead of the S&P. So our clients would say, well, that's a pretty good deal. If I can, our, but worse, by the way, our most aggressive, our most aggressive portfolio last year was down about 9%, whereas S&P was 34, 32 um, so we, we cut the losses there and then we got back in and we actually outpaced the S and P by the end of the year. Um, so that's a, a, about as good as you can do it when you're, um, when you're trying to manage the risk there of what could potentially happen this year with our shift from large cap, from technology into the small cap, into the mid cap, uh, positions. I mean, it has put us well, well ahead. We're probably about four times ahead of the S and P right now, say three and a half times ahead of the S and P right now. Um, as, as we're recording this and, you know, but that could flip on a dime as well. You just can't lock in your games and go to cash right now and just be like, <laughs> we're ahead. We won. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so it's just a really a testament to the numbers. We, we saw the thing shifting back in mid November. We saw that we saw the small cap starting to come into favor and it kind of makes sense. You know, you think about it, there's a lot of hope around the vaccine. There's a lot of uh, hope around stimulus and people really the world going back to normal, normal at some point in 2021. Now we don't know when that's going to be, but that causes a lot of people to go start buying these undervalued companies that really took a beating back in 2020. So we're not buying the undervalued companies because we think they're going to go back to work at some point. We're buying them because there is momentum there. A lot of, a lot of money has gone back into small cap. And so that starts to build the trend line for us. And then we say, okay, there's momentum here. Let's get in now. And then the story makes sense. We follow the numbers, but the story is there, right? The world is eventually going to go back to some type of normal. People are going to go back to work. People are going to get vaccinated and, and, you know, the economy is going to recover to a degree. How long that takes, we don't know, but this is a great start to where we can get those restaurants back open and the economy is really going to start churning. And so small cap, mid cap, that is a big part of the economy. I absolutely agree. 
Well, is there anything, any uh, pointers that you could might give to people mistakes you see people making as they're approaching retirement that you'd like, you know, that they can, uh, they can take action on and correct. Yeah. I think, I, I think the biggest one that we see, um, you know, is knowing what or how much risk you have on your investments. Um, cause I mean, you think about it, you say you're working, you've got a 401k, you've put money into a certain couple of different buckets that you're are allowed within your 401k. And there's not a lot of options there. Typically you may have 15 to 20 options within your 401k. And then you kind of set and forget it, right? You've got 80% going towards the S and P and you've got 20% maybe towards a fixed income position. And it stays that way from when you're 25 to when you're 55, 60. Uh, a lot of times people just forget about it. And it, it's easy to forget because hey, it's working well, it's growing. And you kind of lose track of how much risk you really have on your money. And then, then 2008 hits and that million dollars that you had is now four, five, $600,000. And you're like, well, crap, I didn't know that could happen. I thought I was invested diversified. Um, so I would say, you know, we see it all the time that people just don't realize how much risk they have on their, their individual portfolio. And then when we show them what their assets did in a 2008 type of situation, it's eye-opening. And so when you've got that large amount of money saved up, hopefully it's in the millions, hopefully it's more than that because you work so hard, right? You know, um, and you say, well, I handled 10% really well when I was 25. Well, 10% of maybe, you know, 20,000 is nothing. 10% of a million dollars is something. And that's stuff that you need as you're close, edging closer to retirement. That's a, that's a dollar amount that you really can't afford to lose. So evaluating your risks and then obviously taking the time to think through what your retirement plan is going to be, all the different facets that go with it when it comes to where your income is going to come from, how Social Security is going to work for you, uh, pension, if there is a pension, how you're going to structure different layers of income uh, to cover you. And then another huge piece is your expenses. Uh, nobody really ever knows what they're spending these days. It's very easy to just you know, swipe it on the credit card and pay the bill, but you don't, you don't really pay attention anymore. Auto pay has kind of done that to us. So evaluating what your expenses are is a huge deal. And that's a lot of times you just don't know. And uh, it, your expenses plus inflation all of a sudden can, can really bust a retirement plan. So just a couple of different little things that people need to think about. And all honestly, it's just, you know, take, take interest, take as much interest in your financial futures that you do in your own job. You know, you spend 40, 50 hours a week in your job. Well, take some time and actually think about it for yourself too. It makes a lot of sense because that's hopefully going to be, hopefully that uh, income provides you with the income that your job or replaced the income from your job one day. So, well, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation, uh, just learning, learning about you how you uh, made your way through the market and where you are now. Uh, if people want to contact you, can you give us a way to contact you? And we'll link to anything you mentioned here in the show notes. Yeah, the best way is to go to our website. Um, it is pomwealth.net. So POM stands for peace of mind. POMwealth.net is really the best place. We've got a lot of resources there. There's our blog. Blog's got a bunch of articles that we've written. And then our, our podcast, Secure Your Retirement Podcast, we talk about all types of retirement topics. So I'd say that that's really the best there. And do you just take clients from North Carolina? Or are you around the country? Yeah, so we we primarily are in North Carolina, but we have clients kind of all over. Um, the world of technology has made that possible. Uh, 
Uh, so, we're, you know, we'll, we'll take anyone as long as it, it's a good fit on, on both ends. So, uh, you know, things have to work out on both ends. We have to be able to provide value uh, and they just have to, you know, agree with our philosophy and everything. But we'll take anyone from anywhere, really, if we can. All right. Excellent. Well, we really appreciate that. We have one more segment. We always like to have a little bit of fun here. Brian brings in the question of the day. Sometimes it's personal. Sometimes it's market related. Um, I haven't heard it. You haven't heard it. So Brian, take it away. So yeah. So the, lately, the, the question of the day has become a quiz of the day. And so I'm going to keep with that theme here. This might be a little challenging. I don't, I don't know. This, this, or it might be really easy. So no, no, no way this surprise here. <laughs> but uh, we'll go back and forth. And I have a list of the... Um, Top, so I'll just do top 10, top 10 best performing S&P 500 stocks over the last 30 years. So you go to the last 30 years, the top 10 best performing S&P 500 stocks. I'll tell you, here's my hint. It's not what you expect, but, or maybe some of it is, but a lot of it at least was surprising to me. And we'll just, we'll go back a few, forth a few times to me. Once you get three strikes, you're out. And if you can name all 10, then whoever gets the most is the winner. Um, but I, I can let our guests start, uh, Merce, if you want to try, and again, I thought this was really challenging and that's why I kind of bring it up just because it may not be easy to predict what these 10 are. No Googling, no Googling. Okay. Yeah, so. no, no. Um, I'm just trying to think. Cause so my caveat, my, my asterisk here is that we never invest in individual stocks. So I'm never really paying attention to that. Uh, and I'm just trying to think of what, you know, of the, of the 500, what's really out there. Um, gosh. So this, sorry, this is accurate to from ni- December 1990 through November 2020. And this is by a source called Y Charts, but I've seen it across the internet in a few places. So if there's any inaccuracy, blame them. Uh, I did not come up with this. So this is off the internet. All right. Um, what about General Motors? General Motors. They are not in the top 10. They're not in the top 30. So I don't know. They're not, they're not on the list. They so might not be there. Yeah. Strike, strike one. That probably that, that bankruptcy they went through might've hurt them to get yeah. to the top 30. Well, they've had a nice little run here in the past, but yeah. Yeah. I know this is again, November, 2020. So you got to consider that. But, oh uh, yes. Yeah, but also, I don't know what they're trading out before the bankruptcy. So maybe that like hurt them, you know? Yeah. So I, I do a little bit of uh, individual stock trading on my own mm-hmm. outside of what I do for work. And so, but that's kind of trend following on very current trends and it's kind of like a monthly in and out, but man, these are, these are gonna be tough questions. <clears throat> 30 years. You want to, you want to give a shot at one, Michael? Uh, I'm going to take a Amazon. Amazon number one. Oh yeah. You would have had annual return, uh, 38.4% a year, uh, 212,922% overall. But I, when I was listening to about these stocks, actually Amazon like dropped off by a significant percentage in its first few years. And you would have actually, like, if you just would have started in 2006, you would have been much better off. So you would have had to held pulled Amazon through a downturn before hmm. you actually made those returns. But yes, Amazon is number one. I think that's the only real obvious one to me, at least on this list, but you can try if you want to try Marmers to see some of the other ones. I'm just thinking of what I've had in the past. Um, there's a company called Applied Materials, but maybe that's relatively new. Applied Materials is actually number 19 on the list. Ah. They were, they started in 1973. You still would have done very well. You would have had 21.9% returns per year if you had invested with them, but uh, yeah, that's pretty good. But that's, that's uh, number 19 on this list. What, what do you think, Michael? I'm going to, I'm going to take a shot. Uh, the one uh, Merce had mentioned earlier in the podcast, Microsoft. 
Oh, Microsoft, number 23 on the list. 23, which... okay, it's not top 10, so I've got, uh, I got a strike. Yeah, they, they, I guess they had some tough times there. I, you know, I'll give you more than three strikes if you want to keep going. <laughs> uh, but I would say, I hear, I, I can give you the categories if you want, if that'll help, like the sector. Yeah. So we, ha- so we hey. have uh, a few in healthcare. We have a few in... We have one beverage. Surprisingly, we have one. We have one apparel. We Ooh. have some retail, and uh, we have some. If I give the sectors on the other ones, I think it might give it away. But I, if you want me to give it away, I can. Is the apparel is that Under Armour? It, it is not Under Armour. So when I think of this apparel, I um, it's not one of the major uh, brands. It's okay. a it's a store that sells the apparel. I say I just had a thought and I lost it. <laughs> where, where does your wife go shopping for the your clothes, Michael? You got to think of one of those stores. Like a Macy's know. or uh, uh, I would I say even... not not a Macy's, not a Macy's, but like one of those kind of outlet esque stores. I don't know how to describe them. They, I... they, uh, there's one next to Target in Beaver Creek, if you know where that. If that's if that help, would help, but that's not. Is that a, is that a Nordstrom? No, not a Nordstrom. <laughs> they have Nordstrom's clothing in the store. They have Nordstrom's clothing in the store. If that helps, I think. <laughs> okay, here's it is. Here it is. It's, it's Ross, apparently. Ross. Oh wow. You never expect that, that right? I, that would have been no. my absolute last guess. <laughs> you want me to go down the list, you know, just for funsies here, or you want to get, take a more crack, another guess? Yeah, or two? no, I've I've already been been embarrassed enough. I don't I don't want to. Yeah, this is you this go is ahead. A tough game. <laughs> so, Goodness, Brian, cra- crazy enough. Monster Beverage Corporation. So Monster, Monster. Number- I was gonna say Coca Cola. <laughs> so apparently, Coca Cola bought a lot of their assets, but Monster, just as the energy drink company, had thirty five point four percent annualized returns for the last thirty years. Crazy, uh-huh. right? Not, yeah, Jack Henry and Associates. I've never heard of this. It's an information technology services company. Uh, Cerner Corporations was a health information services company. The only reason I know that is they're out of Kansas City, and they were big in Kansas City, and um, their headquarters were there. And uh, people at my school went, to, or their parents worked at Cerner. Best Buy, number five on the list. Crazy. Oh, wow. In the last thirty years, so I think you're going down like memory lane here. You got to think, you know, yeah. long term here. Uh, number six was Ross. Number seven was a railroad company. So if you, you know, again, the good old railroads, Kansas City uh, Southern. And then um, number eight was United Health Group. Number nine, Altria, which is the tobacco company. And the number 10, IDEX Laboratories. So, hmm. uh, it, you know, Netflix is on this list. It's like number 13, Apple was 15. Um, you know, Starbucks was 22. You know, Lowe's is 24. A lot of your, you know, bigger names were, didn't crack the top 10. So it was, it was kind of interesting. Yeah. I thought this is an interesting exercise just because, 30 years is a long time. And, uh, right. Yeah. And some of those just haven't, some of those haven't been around long enough to really crack the top 10. Um, but, huh. So I, I do something where we we track the top, you know, the top 30, but that's on a month by month rotating basis. And so like right now, the top, um, top three are Viacom, a company called Freeport more McMorrin, and tapestry and then discoveries number four um under armor's number eight and so but that's like uh that's a very quick trending type of thing that you're basically doing a monthly switch out on those but oh man i mean i have stories about all this i mean i i was trading some viacom during the recovery i i was actually bought it on the way down like so i was like oh they have star trek oh man i love star trek you know viacom's <laughs> gonna do so great and then you know it tanked and then now they're they're making it back and i remember under armor is uh you know they were kind of hit hard against Nike, but they, and they, I remember they even had a stadium deal that they had to back out of and it was yeah. just like so downtrodden. And then now they're just like, 
you know, on the path to recovery. So I think yeah. you know, those are all interesting stories, each one of those companies, you know, individually. Any, any further thoughts, Michael or Mers? I got nothing. I think this was great. Yeah, well, I, re- I really enjoyed you coming on, Mers. Brian, you, you're coming up with tough questions. Last time he was asking like colleges. I'm like, you know, I went to Strayer. Give me a break here. <laughs> <laughs> it's for fun michael don't don't i don't think i know i get i i'm very competitive though okay okay well really appreciate your timers uh this has been training for keeps i'm brian and this is michael thanks for listening Trading for Keeps is not intended as investment advice. It is only intended for entertainment purposes. We do receive some affiliate commissions from links in our show notes.